So uh, we're in a, a new series that I'm going to be kicking off today. I, I saw a little warning pop up there. Do we have this? It is working. There we go. Great. Um, I'm calling this um, Perspective. And this is a Lenten series, which means that this is going to take us um, from this week through Easter. Um, it's going to be kind of incorporating all the ideas of, of what we're experiencing, what we're having yet. It's kind of annoying, isn't it? But it's your perspective on the word, how it twists it. Um, we're going to be talking about how the gospel gives us a correct perspective on a lot of the things that we encounter in life. All right, that we can see things more clearly because the gospel is in our view. And if we have a view that does not include the cross, if we have a view that does not include the empty grave, if we have a view that's only looking at the world, um, our perspective is limited. We will see things less clearly if our vantage point does not include what is God doing at this point in time. Um, another way of thinking about this is keeping the cross and the resurrection view so we can see these things more correctly. But whenever we change our perspective, it's actually extremely challenging. It is, I, I, I always marvel at people who can humbly accept another person's perspective on their lives because I see what I see. <laughs> I don't know if you've met many people who are struggling with mental illness or mental disease, um, but sometimes those are extremely severe in the fact that their perception is altered. And it is an act of amazing humility when somebody can say, you know, I, I hear people saying, for instance, that the, the sky is blue. But maybe I'm colorblind. Maybe I don't see things the way you do. I look out there and I see, you know, a red sky. <laughs> and you're telling me that, that with scientific empirical evidence that that sky is blue, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down what I can see. And I'm going to trust your perspective on this. Sometimes this is what, what a good friend will do. You know, I, I've been living my life in, in this little caveat. I've been living in, in this little world, and, and I've, I'm consumed by this perspective that I have. But you look at my life and you say, do you know that you have this gift? Or do you know that you have this struggle? Or do you know that you have bad body odor and everybody around you knows it and you need to know this as well? Or, or do you know that you're, you've got this sin? You've got this way with words. You're, you're coming across as cutting. Or you're coming out and you, and you really have a gift that, that you need to open your mouth and bless these people. We need this perspective to actually know ourselves better, to actually see our lives even in terms of what the Spirit's doing in the world at large. So sometimes to change our vantage point, all that we need simply is to get more information. Sometimes it's that simple. We, we change where we're standing. We, we open up our eyes a little bit broader. We can see things. We can take in more of the scenery. Sometimes that more information is enough to change our perspective. But sometimes it's something more than that. Do you know the, the movie A Beautiful Mind? Has everybody seen it? I don't want to give any spoilers. Okay, I'm going to spoil it for Jessica. So, sorry. Um, it's the story of, of John Nash. He's this brilliant mathematician um, who had paranoid schizophrenia. And the thing that really stands out to me is that some of the characters that you see throughout the movie aren't real. Um, it's not like The Sixth Sense, really, though. Spoiler. I know. You still haven't seen that one. Um, some of the characters you see aren't real. And the, the whole movie is this exploration of how he figures out what is real and what is not. It's this discovery of, of what truth is beyond himself. But the, the scene that stands out to me I've got a, a screenshot from it right here. It's with Russell Crowe. Is at the end of the movie, 
there's this guy who comes up to him. He's now a professor. He has his own students. He's teaching in this classroom. And this guy comes up and he begins talking to him. And you kind of see Russell Crowe just kind of like ignoring him for a little bit. He's just busying himself. And then after a few minutes, he turns to one of the students and says, I need your help. Is this person real or not? And the student looks at him and he verifies, yeah, this, this is a real person here. The humility that it takes to say, something's happening to me right now. I can't trust my own perspective. Something's happening to me right now. Help me out. When we have the cross in view, when we have God's kingdom in view, when we have the, the, the empty tomb in view, we have the humility to say, do I actually have all the information I need right now? This problem that I'm feeling, this loss that I'm suffering, this struggle that I'm going through, I need God's perspective on this. God, is this a real problem or is this not? Do I need to be consumed with fear for this or do I not? Is this your hand moving or is it not? We need a godly perspective to know what we can trust and what we cannot. We cannot always lean on our own understanding. That, that's scriptural. <laughs> we want to lean and we trust what we see with our own two eyes. We trust what we understand but humility tells us maybe we don't have all the facts. Maybe we don't yet see clearly. Throughout all of Scripture, there's this repeated refrain, let him who has ears, let him hear. Let him who has eyes, let him see. Let he who has a mind to understand, let him comprehend this stuff. Because we don't always get it all. We don't always see it all. And whenever we, the, the creation, can get the eyes of the Creator, we can see this world more clearly because of what has been spoken, what has been done, what has been laid before us by the cross and the resurrection. Lent is getting a heavenly perspective on this world that we're walking through. This is what we're walking towards, is seeing things clearly. Help me with my perspective. I know I'm flawed. I know I only see as through a mirror darkly, our scripture teaches us. So Lent, in one aspect of it, is often about sacrificing and hunger. It's a way of minimizing the world and maximizing the kingdom. So to the world, hunger, like we have in Lent when we, when, we, when we fast, when we sacrifice, hunger is something that we want to minimize. It's something that we want to avoid. It's something that, that we see as fleshly as in our body. But when we look at this idea of sacrifice and hunger from a Lenten perspective, I think we're going to see a little bit different. The irony comes down with Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is something that is right there at the beginning of all Lenten celebrations. We've got Fat Tuesday. I, I actually tried to find a, a picture. There was nothing appropriate. <laughs> so, but Fat Tuesday in itself is kind of a great tradition. And I, I actually, I really love what Fat Tuesday means. Fat Tuesday is this idea of, hey, I'm going to be going to this season of fasting. I need to get this stuff out of my house. I don't want it to go to waste. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to invite the neighborhood to a party at my house. So that all this meat, so that all the sugar, so that all the flour, so that all the grease, all the oil, all the stuff that I have, we're going to make cakes, we're going to make a, a barbecue, and I'm going to open up my table. And that's what Fat Tuesday was. I know I'm going to the season of, of going without. So now we're, while I have something, I'm going to share it broadly so we have a party. We're going to have a celebration of what the Lord has given me to this point because I'm willingly and knowingly going to go without. But what it's become is, I'm going to go, I'm going to buy stuff I don't need. I'm going to travel to places I don't need. I'm going to have a party. I'm going to go to excess with everything. I'm going to sin as much as possible now because I'm going to feel a little bit worse if I sin in the next 40 days. But now to take it to a degree even worse than that, people who have no 
potential of celebrating Lent with any sacrifice or any hunger go just for the parties. And this is why this, this thing that's actually kind of wonderful has become twisted. It's become a, a perverse manifestation of what's actually really beautiful. The world says, save up now and fear because your hunger is coming. The world says, protect yourself, feed yourself, enjoy yourself, delight yourself. Don't worry about tomorrow. Now, now, now. But a kingdom hunger, a kingdom hunger that we have, a kingdom hunger that we can, that we can actually respect, that has the view of the cross, says, I'm not made for this world. I'm longing for something else. A kingdom hunger says, I long for something because I am not yet in a time of fulfillment. A kingdom hunger says, I, I, this, this body doesn't have the last word. I know what the cross and the empty, empty tomb mean. I need to be a part of that. I need to be so consumed with those ideas that the things of this world grow strangely dim, that they don't, they don't get the pool on my time and my attention in the same way. The idea of Lent about giving something up, sacrificing something, going without. We need to dispose of the idea that, that hunger, that this idea of, of loss, of sacrifice, whatever we're going to call it, is giving up bad things. I think a lot of us go into to Lent and we try to, try to, to just you know, alter our lives to, to minimize some of the bad habits we've had or the, the sins that we're doing. Like, if you're sinning, stop now. <laughs> well, now we're already in Lent. But you know what I mean. Don't wait for Lent to stop your sins. And what we do is we put the stock in the season. We put our, our hope in this, this idea of like this, this approach to the, the tomb. But really, the Lenten perspective, having the, the cross and the empty tomb in view is always what we need to be having. So that our sin always is something we need to be struggling with. It's something we always need to be putting down. Fasting isn't about avoiding the bad things. Fasting is about choosing hunger. Choosing hunger. Making a sacrifice so we can be more devoted towards that which we're actually more hungry for. Choosing hunger. The world does not choose hunger. The world avoids hunger. But if you think about what life is, it's often a series of just trying to satiate hunger. You know, I, I, I need to breathe. And, you know, I, I need to, to, I have thirst. I have, I have hunger for food. It's this idea of constantly trying to feed ourselves so that those feelings don't drive us. And whenever, when those feelings come into our lives, we just want to get away from them as much as possible. That's the worldly approach to hunger. Minimize that. Get rid of that. Satiate your body. Feel content. Enjoy everything you've got. But the church, through what we've seen with Christ, we embrace this idea that we long for something else, that we long for something in a different way. Two people can look at the same thing and walk away with a very different understanding, a very different takeaway from the situation. Like I said before, so much of the Bible talks about he who has ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind to understand. Lean not into your own understanding. Two people can have the same way with something very different. Because some people need to be given a better perspective. They haven't seen it all. They need to see Jesus in the light of his humanity and his divinity. They need to see that as glory, the lamb that was slain. They don't have that perspective. They don't understand that. We need to give them that perspective. Do you understand what God has done for you? Have more information. Let that information, let that perspective take root in it. But for some people, that's not enough. They can see that and they walk away unchanged, unaffected by it. So let's assume for a second that the two people both hear the gospel. 
They both hear the gospel. They're both sinners. They both have the information now that I'm a sinner and that God loves me and that God has done something for me to make a way back to him. So let's further assume that both these people actually understand that. (laughs) They both understand that those words mean what they mean and that I'm a sinner and that I need grace and that God has made a way for me. And yet those two people, with that understanding, with that perspective, one man might drop to his knees and repent and say, Lord, I choose your way. I need to come back to you. And the other man might walk away unchanged, going about his day as if nothing has shifted because nothing has shifted for him. You know that story. You've seen those people. You know that this is not just a theoretical situation. What's the difference between that man who falls to his knees and the person who goes about as if nothing has shifted in his lives? John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why did Jesus use this metaphor? He's calling the crowds. He's, he's, he's bringing the gospel. He's bringing the grace and the mercy and the way back. And he turns to the crowd and he says, I'm the bread of life. Why doesn't he say here, guys, I'm the only thing that matters. I'm, I'm truth itself. I'm truth incarnate. Why doesn't he say, I'm the light by which you can see? Why doesn't he say, it's about team Jesus. (laughs) Come join up and and sign up and and, and I'm going to give you all the right answers for the test at the end. And sometimes he leads us with different ways, but, but here what he's saying is your hunger, things you long for are meant to be fulfilled. I'm going to go back to those two men we talked about, the man who drops on his knees and the man who goes about as if nothing changed. I'm going to say one of them is hungry. One of them has a longing that he knows in his soul. The other man just simply isn't yet. And hopefully the word there is yet. Jesus used the metaphor of hunger and thirst, not right and wrong, not good and bad, not us versus them. Because he's speaking to something that they have in their souls, a desire that they have that's natural. You're hungry because you need food. But sometimes our bodies betray us. Sometimes we've been satisfied by Twinkies and Ho-Hos or whatever they are. And even though your body needs nutrition, you don't feel hungry. You've taken a quick way. You've taken a lazy way. You, you, you filled it with empty calories and, and you're not getting what you need, but you don't quite feel hungry. So you skip a meal here or there and you, you don't make healthy choices because, you know, it, you'll be fine. So what's more appetizing? This first slide I have here, look at this. Nutritional information one. I could tell you, guys, I could give you something right now. 374 grams, 942 calories, 90% of your total fat that you need in a day. 108% of your saturated fat. I could give you 57% of your cholesterol, 1,081 milligrams of sodium. Let's have that. Or, here's the next thing. There we go. (laughs) The Whopper itself. (laughs) And yes, that is actually the accurate Whopper nutritional facts, which is maybe not great for us. But the marketing campaigns know what they're doing. When they want to arouse your hunger, they don't give you facts and figures. They don't tell you what, what this actually is about. They don't just give you information about something. They elicit your hunger. They take a good photo. They, they let you smell it. You know, they, they, they airbrush 
out the imperfections on the bun. You know, whatever it is going to be, they, they array this thing artfully so that, that you can taste it and you know, oh, that would be so good right now. It's not about the facts and the figures. We have often looked at evangelism as trying to get the facts and figures before people. You are a sinner. There is grace. Therefore, you, a sinner, should use this grace to get back to God. And how does that work? Well, some people just need information, and they didn't know that information. When they get that information, they're like, oh, thank God. I, I was always looking for a way back to God, and now I know his name is Jesus. But for most of us, even with that information, what we need is our, our hunger to be aroused, glory to be understood, worship to make sense, beauty to have a place to be applied, the power and the authority of God to make a difference in my life. That the parts that I was created for feel like they have a, a place to manifest, a place to, to enjoy, that life could be made worth living, that I can be connected with something as it was always meant to be. That it's not a show, it's not facts, it's not figures, it's not a test that I have to cram for, but it's home. It's the difference between an address and a home. You can be given all that information. Here's, there's a house on this place. It looks like this. It's in this style. Here's the address. But you can walk into a place and you can feel this is home. I belong here. The smell of warm chocolate cookies comes out and greets you. There's a voice from upstairs. Honey, are you home? You know that you've arrived. You can walk into a friend's house and they've opened up those doors to you. It's not the same thing as walking into a, a, an office clinic or, or walking into a, uh, I've got the, those desks spread out. It's not quite the cubicles at work now. We just have the hotel style seating. And you walk in there and there's like every workstation could be the same. I don't feel at home here. You walk into a friend's house and they say, oh, you're here. You're welcome. Take your shoes off. Stay a while. So of course, you know, my my main tenants that lead me in the vineyard, no hype and no manipulation. But I love something that A.W. Tozier said. And I'll, I'm going to say that I acknowledge that simply because that, that, uh, that whopper, you could definitely see that as hype and manipulation, right? You're not just eliciting hunger. You're, you're, you're trying to bring something about that, that maybe you weren't going to feel naturally. You're, you're amping things up. You're twisting. You're, you're, you're just making things a little bit clear so that your hunger is your driving force. A.W. Tozer says in a book, and this isn't quite this quote yet, he says, I would be embarrassed to meet God and to see him clearly and to realize that he wasn't as good, as loving, as kind, as powerful, as just as we made him out to be. And he says that is a completely unthinkable situation. Can we oversell God's love? <laughs> no. <laughs> Can we oversell his justice? No. Can we oversell his power or his authority? No. He has all power. He has all authority. He defines what love is and what love is not. He is more kind and merciful, and he will bring about justice. We're not going to get to heaven and be like, ooh, did you guys know that God really wasn't that kind? Like, I feel like, you know, Leah was more kind than this. No, that's not. It's unthinkable. And you can't even finish that thought because you realize, no, he defines that. He makes that. He is that. So we cannot, we cannot misrepresent his lovingness, his kindness, his power, his authority. So this is where the, the prayer comes in. Oh God, I've tasted thy goodness. 
has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. That's hunger in view of the cross. That's thirst in view of the empty tomb. That's understanding in this Lenten season. I'm hungry and I'm hungry for more and I'm thirsty and I'm thirsty for more because God alone can satisfy me and I, I have him now, but I will need more. I want more. And it's not, it's not hype and manipulation. It's the thing itself. It's the thing itself. I don't think I've ever had a Whopper and just felt, well, that's exactly like the commercial made it out to be. You know, like they come and they're all misshapen and smushed and there's too much mayo on this one and there's too much, you know, not on that one. And it, it, it's, it's never the same thing. But when we experience Christ and his spirit, it makes sense. And this prayer can be prayed. In the vineyard, we say, we set the table and we get out of the way. I think this is so important for us to understand that this idea of no hype and no manipulation, what is it that we're actually calling people to? Is it a true representation of the thing itself or is what we make it out to be? Is it about listen to our songs and how bright and energetic, listen to how, how well-spoken we are. Paul had to struggle with this stuff. Look at, look at how well-crafted our programs are. We set the table and get out of the way that your hunger can be satisfied by God himself. Because if I offer you what I have, you're going to leave hungry. <laughs> you're going to leave thirsty. I can point you to the Father, but I cannot give you what he alone can. This is why the priesthood has always been a, a struggle, because when people insert themselves between you and God himself, you're getting a diluted thing. You're not getting the full meal. You're not able to enjoy the fullness that God has called you to when you actually are abiding in the vine. You're abiding in him. So what are we inviting people to? Are we inviting to, to Fat Tuesday? Are we inviting you to a parade of sad and lonely people as we enter into a fast? So we can look morose and sad and say, look how pious and holy I am. And I'm going to go without food because that's what my religion, you know, requires of me. Or do we have the view of the cross and the empty tomb? that we can say, I need more of you, Father. The old hymn says, let God be his old interpreter. We are not God's marketing department. We're not desperate for sales or to get people to sign up. But church, has your hunger been satisfied? This is a real question to you now to consider. Has your hunger been satisfied? Because in our spiritual hunger, it's so easy to get a quick fix. Those spiritual Twinkies and tweetable quotes, those tweetable quotes which are superimposed on hazy pictures of, of crosses and doves and, and, and sashes. In my hunger and our hunger, keep a clear view of the cross. Keep a clear view of the empty tomb. Let God be God. This physical hunger, which is a very real part of Lent, if I talk too long, you're going to know exactly what I mean. You're going to feel it rumbling already. Because we can't go long without needing something. Our bodies constantly need. 
we need to breathe, we need water, we need, we need food. And we have this constant cycle of, of hunger, 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 satisfy, satisfy, satisfy. And that's the thing. Hunger is meant to be satisfied. There's a, a book called Letters to an Atheist. It's a son writing to his father and they're debating questions of faith. And one of the points that the, the son makes to his father is every desire we have, every hunger we have is meant to be satisfied by something real. We have a longing for food, and guess what? This world has food. We have a thirst, and guess what? This world has water. We have a longing for shelter. We know we need that protection, and guess what? We can find shelter in this world. We have a longing for relationship and intimacy, and guess what? We are created in contact with people and community. And every culture, every people, every tribe, every language has a longing for God. They have a longing to know the Creator. They have a longing to know where they came from and where they're going and, and their place in this whole big picture. And he says, every longing is meant to be satisfied. Therefore, I know that the spiritual longing that is so common to mankind is meant to be satisfied. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. I didn't come up with one. That's a Tozier one as well. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. But the Beatitudes make this very clear for us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? For they will continue to struggle. They will forever see it before them like a carrot on a stick, right? Isn't that what the Beatitudes say? No, this is what the Beatitudes say for us. <laughs> you got the slide? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. Your hunger is meant to be satisfied. I mean, this is perhaps one of the most profound things when I think about it. Your hunger, your longing, the things that you, your soul cries out for in this Lenten season, when you see the cross and the empty tomb, it's meant to be satisfied. It's not to be like this dangling thing that makes you toe the line and make you do what you need to do and don't do the things you're not supposed to do or you're going to feel bad. No, your hunger, your thirst is meant to be satisfied. That longing that you have, that, that hopeful longing, is meant to be satisfied. That's what Christ said. I'm the bread of life. Come and eat. You will not hunger. Come and drink. You will not be thirsty. That's more profound than I've ever appreciated before. Hunger and thirst for what? For power? for wealth, for fame, no, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I got to say, you know, what does that look to hunger and thirst for righteousness? You know, man, I could really go for a big, hot, steaming bowl of righteousness right now. You know, like it's, it's an unusual thing, especially in the spiritual context. I, th I think we can see I long for a feeling of joy. I, I long for knowing I'm forgiven. I, I long for you know, maybe justice and forgiveness, to say I long for righteousness might cause many of us to pause and to say, I mean, there's things I, I long for, but, but is righteousness going to be the one that I, I point to? To be honest, this one eludes my emotions a bit. It eludes my, my, my desires a little bit. But there's a reading that's often suggested to us that when we encounter the word righteousness, think of it instead as right standing. And all of a sudden, I can get this one. I long for right standing. I hunger for right standing. I long to know that I belong. I long to be found complete. 
I long to be clean, untarnished, undamaged, restored where I should be as I was made to be. I have that hunger. I have that thirst. There's another one that we often skip over in Romans where it says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. That one always causes me to, to, to struggle because, man, that is such a Roman legion type of battle cry, you know? I mean, think about it. It, it just makes perfect sense. You're speaking to soldiers. What, what, they're they're going to clang their, their shields and their spears together, and they're going to say things like glory, honor, immortality. And our scripture says those who, by persistence in doing good, seek those things, he will give eternal life. They're longing for these things. They're they're hoping for these things. And so God says, it'll be satisfied. You'll find it in me. These things that we long for are not meant to be carrots on a stick. They're not meant to to lead us into the wasteland. They're not meant to, to take you off course. This hunger, this thirst takes you to the cross, to the empty tomb. And it's satisfied there. It's satisfied there. It's fulfilled there. You can have what you, you long for when you go there. Not to be like, man, I, I tried that once. It wasn't that good. The Whopper left me satisfied, so I tried the double Whopper. Still hungry, went with the triple Whopper. Then I was sick for a week. It was a terrible experience. Don't, don't do that. Um, but come to me, Christ said. I'll give you streams of living water. If you drink, you will not thirst again. So yeah, it's not just physical hunger. We're talking about a hunger for truth, for love, for beauty even. Some of us in this room, we're, we're quite frankly, we're just not hungry enough. Why? Because we're living on fat stores. <laughs> now we're, we're, we're so content. We've been given so much truth. We've been given so many wonderful worship songs. We, we've, we've heard stories and testimonies, and we're just like, yeah, God's at move in India. <laughs> Man, God did a great thing in the 1800s in Africa. Do you, do you hear about that Welsh revival? Man, that was some good stuff. And that's my church. And we're content with that. <laughs> but what about here today? What about your personal hunger? We're living on fat stores. We're not working out our spiritual cells and we're not growing in spiritual ways. You know, my appetite on the days when I go for a run is horribly different than the days whenever I find an excuse that means I don't have to go for a run today. You know, like, oh, it's going to rain in an hour. Therefore, I won't run right now. But if I go for that run, man, I come in and I'm hungry because I've been doing something. I've been doing something, so I need something. I, I have a hunger. If you look, if you hear what I'm saying and you're like, yeah, I get what you're saying, but I just don't feel that. Does your life necessitate taking in more then? Are you actually building up an appetite? Are you actually doing something to make yourself hungry? Or are you really just living a, a, a sedentary, lazy spiritual life that doesn't require faith, that doesn't require trust, that doesn't require you to stretch yourself and find a new way? When things work well, our hunger grows because we need more. But many of us don't need more of God because we're not doing enough. There's this view on giving versus receiving that I think many of us have. You can think about this as, as a number of different things, but, but it's, it's this two-pronged thing, right? I'm either giving or I'm receiving. I'm either giving something and I'm pouring into this store, 
you know, or I'm receiving and I'm taking it in myself. And we see this as like, okay, that's, that's the way that this whole exchange works. I have a gift, I give it, uh, there's a giver, there's a receiver, end of transaction. The thing is, this simplified view of giving and receiving, of, of having and not having, of, of presenting something, doesn't quite match up with our, our true experience of giving and receiving. Because it doesn't work this way. What we have instead is this. Giving and receiving in this quadrant. Okay, this might seem a little technical, but stick with me through this. If you have a, a high sense of giving and a high sense of receiving, what do you have? You have like the Trinity. This perfect idea of giving and receiving at the same time. You ever hear that it's more blessed to give than to receive? I feel so good. I really do when Leah appreciates something that I got for her. Like it's so, I gave her this one time, I went to this little store in Athens and I gave her this little glass Hershey's Kiss that I just saw and thought of her. You know what she did? She kept it. <laughs> she put it in the curio cabinet, still in our bedroom. And it, and it, I just, it makes me happy because I thought of her, it's like, oh, here's a little thing. It cost me like $5, you know, for, for college and that actually was a pretty big amount, but, but she appreciated it. And it still is something I receive joy from. It, it still is a part of our story. I gave and I received. We have love. We have a relationship. We have story that's coming. So high giving, high receiving, that's like the tree. That's when things work well. Now, if I'm not giving and I'm not receiving, I'm depressed. I'm isolated. I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. I'm, I'm by myself. But maybe I've got a high level of giving and I'm not receiving too much back from this. <laughs> In fact, Leah just pulled out now that this is worth mentioning. It's a baby. So this, this, is, this came from a, a 50 cent gumball machine. You know those little egg things? And so 50, we're at the grocery store buying groceries. I just pop it in. Not sure what you'll get. You know, a, a ring, a bouncy ball. Some, we, we got a baby. For the next, I guess you just baby tagged me right now. <laughs> So what we would do is we would baby tag each other and with this little 50 cent thing became a little token that we would just hide in each other's room or in their book bag or in something. And we'd sometimes have the note saying baby tag and we would just pass it off back and forth to each other, giving and receiving the same thing. So this is 20 something years old and it's been going back and forth. My wife had it in her purse right now. That's high giving high receiving and now now she's baby tagged me so now it's back on me to, to slide it back to, to her at some point in time i won't lose the baby <laughs> all right so if we have a high degree of giving low receiving it's unhealthy and unsustainable you're just pouring out all the time and sometimes you feel this way i'm just loving people i'm just pouring my life out and you know i can do this for a season but i i i can't keep doing it forever Sometimes, instead, we're selfish. The fat stores start building up. We eat the spiritual Twinkies. We have higher degree of receiving and low giving. Now, the wonderful thing is that that, that quadrant right there where the Trinity is, high giving, high receiving, that's hunger and thirst in the kingdom of God. That you, you hunger and thirst and you're satisfied and you want more. You keep going back, and there's this constant feed of, of God, I, I have you. It's this paradox of love. I have you, and I'm satisfied, and I need more. 
I have you and I'm satisfied and I need more. My hunger drives me more to you where I am satisfied by more and then I keep going deeper and deeper. And if we're not engaged, if we're not actually doing something, we might not have that hunger itself. The idea is that the cross stands in opposition to selfish and unsustainable giving. The cross and the empty tomb stand in opposition to that because God has a fullness that doesn't wear out. God has a fullness that doesn't run out. You can trust his stories. You can trust his wealth. You can trust what he has. The vineyard was started by a bunch of burned out church workers and administrators, secretaries, bookkeepers. They were just hungry. <laughs> they were tired of the machinery. They were tired of, of the empty promises. They were tired of just trying to keep a, a, a business going. And they longed to be in the presence of God. They longed for this thing that they've been talking about to not just be on paper, but to actually affect my soul. Like these words have got to have some foundational grounded meaning or what's the point? And so they met, not in their church buildings, not in these things that they had grown up in, and that were doing fairly well by the numbers. They met in, in houses, they met in living rooms, and they just sang songs. They had rules. You know what they, taught, they said? You can't teach scripture here was one of the rules. You can read scripture, but we're not going to be teaching it. We do that in the church building. Here, maybe we'll speak it out loud, but we're just going to just let the scripture be scripture. We're just let songs be songs. We're just going to pour ourselves out to God. And what began happening is they realized that this was everything that they always wanted church to be. And then that living room experience and the, those songs that were so simple, they're not complex, they're not hymns, they don't have hundreds of years, they became their hearts cry in the churches. That's our heritage. Hungry people. Hungry people calling out for more. And then realizing there is satisfaction here. One of my favorite passages is from this old French woman, Jeanne Gaillon, which I'm probably pronouncing horribly wrong. And I wanted to put up these scriptures here. I've got four scriptures here just so that you can read these along as I read this part from what she says. She writes, No, beloved souls, you will not find consolation in aught but in the love of the cross and in total abandonment. Who loves not the cross, loves not the things that are of God. See Matthew. It's impossible to love God without loving the cross, and a heart that loves the cross finds the bitterest things to be sweet. As it says in Proverbs, to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet, because it finds itself hungering for God in proportion as it is hungering for the cross. God gives us the cross, and the cross gives us God. Come, all of you who are athirst, take this water of life freely, as in Revelation. Do not amu amuse yourself by hewing out to yourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Come, hungry souls, who find nothing that can satisfy you. You shall be filled. Come, poor afflicted ones, weighed down with griefs and sorrows, and you shall be comforted. Come, sick ones, to the great physician, do not fear to approach him because you are so weak and diseased. Expose all of your diseases to him and they shall be healed. How hungry these loving ones are after suffering. They think only of what can please their beloved. They begin to neglect themselves, to think less of themselves. 
the more they love God, the more they hate themselves. Is that our story of hunger? Or is it, man, it's really unpleasant when I hunger for something and I'm just going to take the easy way out. We live in a fast food culture, satisfy every craving. Just make it through. Just, just, just try to minimize the pain and the suffering and the longing and just, just get through. Tozer says, the world is perishing for lack of the knowledge of God. The church is famishing for want of his presence. The world is perishing for lack of the knowledge of God. That's the perspective. They need the perspective. They need to know the information about the cross. The gospel needs to be spoken to the world that they know it. But the church is famishing for want of his presence. That's where we can be satisfied. That's where we have what the world even needs. That's where we have to start with this. Worship, beauty, the quest for righteousness, justice, a kingdom community commanded by love. That's hunger in view of the cross. The kingdom perspective allows us to put oil on our heads, like it says about fasting in Matthew 6. I want to read this. When you fast, do not, look, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. We don't fast as a public testimony. We don't fast to try to say, look how holy and righteous I am. I'm going without. I'm doing my spiritual duty. We fast because God will satisfy us. God will reward us. Our hunger and our thirst is meant to be satisfied by the cross, by the empty grave. So we fast not for others, not for the show. We fast for ourselves. We fast for God. We go without so we can have what really matters. This hunger is personal. It's a sacrifice that only I can make. Hunger is personal. We don't share hunger. If I'm hungry but my family's not, guess what? I got to find my own. <laughs> we don't share hunger. It's not the way this thing works. Our bodies hunger. And we know it. It's a sacrifice only I can make, rich or poor, born to privilege or without, Jewish or Gentile. No matter your circumstances, you can have hunger. It's a great equalizer. If we choose to go without, no matter where you come from, no matter what your story is, hunger can drive us to the same place. Hunger, no matter where you've been born, no matter what you have or what you have not had, hunger can take us to the cross. There's no priest or merchant to pay this tab. Only you can reach into the, the, the storehouses of heaven, eat the bread of life, and be satisfied yourself. So check your soul, church. How hungry are you? How hungry are you? When was your last spiritual workout? When did you, when did you last do something that required and used up what you've had instead of trying to build a storehouse? How much do you need? How much do you rely on God, his Holy Spirit, to take you through your day? Is your view on life, is your view on hunger trying to avoid this? Trying to avoid hunger? Trying to avoid hard work? Because I don't know if I'll ever get a meal again. It's just, it's more comfortable now. It's safer now to not have hunger. Or does your view include the cross? 
so that you can see the power of our hunger and thirst, the blessing Christ promised to those of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our hunger will direct us, church. It will direct us to Burger King or to a steakhouse or to a Twinkie, to things unhealthy or things healthy. I don't know why I've been ragging on Burger King all, all day. Are we engaged with our hunger to live life as we should? Or are we trying to find the easiest way to just not be bothered by it? Are we so insulated, so comfortable, so satiated that hunger isn't something that we can even relate to any longer? That's what I've got for us today. And those are real questions. So we're going to end with uh, some worship, which I think is one of the best ways that we have to actually do all these things that we need to do. I think some of you might actually need to do a little spiritual workout right now. I think some of you have something that you need to give. And you might feel like you don't. You know, you might feel kind of stoic and like, okay, I guess maybe I should. Well, that's where we start. God has called us to give. And the, the, the old phrase that we used, and I love this, is that if you're here and you are here, come to either give or receive. 